At least 2,100 people are dead and thousands more injured following a 6.8 magnitude earthquake in Morocco. It's Monday, September 11th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the Food and Drug Administration is expected to give the green light to a new set of COVID boosters as infection numbers climb. Plus, President Biden wraps up his trip to Asia with a visit to Vietnam. Also this hour, Nicaragua has become one of the most authoritarian countries in the Western Hemisphere. An exclusive NPR report gives new perspective on what it's like to live there. I don't know how many countries have that very sad record of putting seven presidential candidates in Greece or under house arrest. In sports, Patriots lose their home opener, cloudy in 70s today with a chance of rain and thunderstorms. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden has wrapped up a visit to Vietnam aimed at deepening the diplomatic and economic relationship between the two former enemies. NPR's Michael Sullivan reports both are wary of China. President Biden leaves Vietnam with the U.S. now elevated to the role of comprehensive strategic partner, an upgrade Hanoi had long resisted. But China's increasing assertiveness in the South China Sea helped change Hanoi's mind. Biden also met with business leaders from both countries as Washington tries to diversify its supply chains away from China, especially in tech industries. Biden also visited a memorial honoring his longtime friend, the late Senator John McCain, who spent more than five years as a prisoner of war after the then Navy pilot was shot down over Hanoi in 1967. Michael Sullivan, NPR News, Chiang Rai. Today is the 22nd anniversary of the September 11th attacks on the United States. President Biden, returning from Asia, will commemorate the day with a speech to U.S. military troops when he lands in Alaska. Vice President Harris will attend remembrance ceremonies at the World Trade Center in New York. New COVID booster shots are on the horizon this fall amid an uptick in COVID cases. As NPR's Marie Andrusevich reports, approval of the boosters could happen as early as this week. Speaking on ABC's This Week, former director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Dr. Anthony Fauci, said Americans should not expect a, quote, tsunami of hospitalizations and deaths as seen during the height of the pandemic, but they should still show caution as cooler months approach. The FDA is expected to approve new COVID-19 boosters targeted to a more recent version of the Omicron virus. Fauci says approval should happen before the end of this month. The CDC will recommend who should get the shot. I would say that make it available for everyone, but certainly recommend it for the high-risk people. Fauci also referenced data that says masks are highly effective in fighting COVID, but he says he's not expecting new federal mask mandates. Marie Andrusevich, NPR News. Pennsylvania State Police say an escaped murderer is still at large. State Police Lieutenant Colonel George Bivens says that convicted killer Danilo Cavalcante has tried to change his appearance, stolen a truck, and gotten inside people's homes. Bivens says that Saturday night he tried to reach a former co-worker. At 9.52 p.m., he attempted to contact an individual he had known and worked with several years prior. Cavalcante spoke with the individual via a video doorbell at that residence and inquired about meeting with that individual. The individual was at dinner with his family and did not respond to meet Cavalcante. Police believe Cavalcante is still in Chester County, west of Philadelphia. This is NPR.
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Andover Public Schools are closed today as that community continues to deal with extensive power outages. More than 1,500 households remain without power in the town following this weekend's storms. Statewide, there are currently about 3,800 outages. High winds and heavy rain this weekend left tens of thousands of homes without power. Massachusetts's police oversight agency has removed nearly 50 complaints from its officer misconduct database. The database was made public last month. Officials tell the Boston Globe the information was removed because of data errors or because later decisions overturned misconduct complaints. Boston City Council President Ed Flynn says it's very unlikely he will run for mayor when current mayor Michelle Wu's term ends in 2026. While appearing on WCVB's On the Record, Flynn said he has other plans for the future. It's been a tremendous honor to be city council president. I'll go back to being a district city councilor. And then down the road, maybe if I have the opportunity to work on veterans issues and military family issues somewhere in the federal government or the state government. Flynn is running unopposed in Tuesday's preliminary. Today marks the 22nd anniversary of the September 11th terror attacks. State officials will remember the 206 people with ties to Massachusetts who were killed in those attacks. WBUR's Amy Sokolow reports on some of the local memorials planned. Outside the State House at 846 this morning, there will be a moment of silence. That's when the hijacked American Airlines Flight 11 out of Logan Airport hit the North Tower of the World Trade Center families will read the names of the victims. Later, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu will lay a ceremonial wreath at the memorial in the public garden, and firefighters from across the state will march from Boston Common to the State House to honor the bravery of first responders. Public service projects are also planned. For one, volunteers will pack meals for the Greater Boston Food Bank. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. The Patriots lost to the Eagles yesterday during their regular season home opener. The Eagles began the game with an early lead that the Pats just couldn't recover from. Final score was 25 to 20. The Red Sox are celebrating a four-run win yesterday against Baltimore. They ended the game with a final score of 7-3. The Sox host the Yankees tonight in the first of a four-game series. We have some patchy fog this morning. It'll be cloudy today with a chance of afternoon showers and thunderstorms. The high will be near 76. Tonight, temperatures fall to a low around 66, and there's a chance of more showers and thunderstorms overnight. Tomorrow, another foggy start to the morning with clouds during the day and a high back at 76. There's a chance of showers in the afternoon. Right now, it's 69 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We have an eyewitness account today of devastation from an earthquake in Morocco. The earthquake struck Friday night in the high Atlas Mountains, and that name gives you a clue into the difficulty of getting aid in to the people who need it most. Wrecked roads and aftershocks make it hard to get there. The death toll has surpassed 2,100 people so far. NPR's Lauren Frere is in Marrakesh, a city near the quake's epicenter. Hey there, Lauren. Hi, Steve. What do you see? Well, I'm in the doorway of a public hospital emergency room, and about every minute or so an ambulance comes up, uh, disgorges victims, people with bandages, splints on their legs, some unconscious, wailing relatives pile out of the ambulances with them. People are caked in dust and dirt. These are victims who have been pulled out of the, the rubble from the quake sort of 48 hours on. In some cases, they got treatment at smaller facilities in the mountains, but now are being shifted to this larger hospital. I talked to an ER doctor there. Her name is Umema Tunsi, and I asked her the, about the injuries she's seeing. It's mainly broken bones, broken limbs. Hemorrhage, like internal hemorrhage in the chest. Hemorrhaging, internal exactly. bleeding. Yes, we have a lot of that too. The ER this looks like a head injury yes, here. He's bandaged and his neck yes, is in a brace. Yes. Could be the neck, it could be the head, which is like very, very dangerous territory. She says nothing in med school prepared her uh, for this. Yeah, how, how could anything really? Uh, Lauren, thanks for the imagery there of the hospital where you're standing. What is the situation elsewhere in this large city? You know, the biggest thing you notice is people sleeping outdoors. Lots of people, even if their homes survived Friday's initial quake, the aftershocks keep hitting. And so you see people just running out of buildings all the, the time. And many are too scared to re-enter at all. And so every inch of green space, like highway medians, are covered with sleeping bags. I've been driving around the city. Asphalt roads are cracked. Uh, roads are closed as the military tries to repair them quickly. There's been a lot of focus on the walled old city of Marrakesh. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. A minaret from a centuries-old mosque there fell down. Lots of broken glass. But there are also lots of tourists, Steve. Marrakesh remains a tourist hub. And so you've got this eerie juxtaposition of, like, foreigners in Hawaiian shirts and sunglasses roaming around taking selfies in the rubble. Oh, because they were present, of course, on Friday. L Lauren, I'm trying to think about the, the, the transit situation. You were able to reach there, I know, able to get a flight into an airport that is still functioning, but you also refer to cracked roads and roads closed. Can international aid arrive? It is arriving. Search and rescue teams are coming from the UK, Spain, Qatar, the UAE. There will obviously be questions about whether the government here requested that aid quick enough and why only four countries were invited. Moroccans, though, those who can, have really mobilized. I'm looking at a line around the block across the street from here at a blood bank where people are lining up to donate. I drove part of the way up into the mountains yesterday. That road is in worse shape, um, choked with military convoys, ambulances, funeral processions. At one point, I stopped and asked for directions, and a man on the side of the road told me, you know, beyond here, there's just kind of nothing left. I am going to try to get beyond there today to some of those villages where we hear they're still without food, without water, without electricity, without any help at all. Well, we'll continue listening for your reporting then. And Lauren, please be safe. Thank you, Steve. That's NPR's Lauren Freyer in Marrakesh. Now, the organization Education for All Morocco 
reported damage to six boarding houses that it runs for teenage girls in the Atlas Mountains. The boarding houses provide girls with free meals and a place to stay and computers as they attend nearby schools. The group's CEO is Sonia Omar, and she's on the line from London. Welcome to the program. Hi, nice to be here. Thanks what, for having me. Yeah, glad, glad you could join us. What are you hearing from your students? Well, um, the sad thing is, is that actually hearing from our students is challenging because uh, it was school holidays. So rather than being in our boarding houses, they were all back in their villages and mm. their villages are exactly at the epicenter of this devastating earthquake. Um, these girls come from rural Berber villages. You know, the houses are extremely rudimentary. There is very little infrastructure as it is. And so, you know, we're, we're desperately trying to reach the girls. A lot of the, the phones are down in these villages. And as your reporter shared, roads are blocked. These villages are very remote. Some of them are not even on a main road. They're off a beaten track. I'm also so thinking, it, I'm thinking about the fact that they come to your boarding houses because they come from villages where there are few, if any, schools, which makes me think there must be, even in ordinary times, relatively few public services. Do those villages have resources to manage a crisis like this they don't have resources they don't even have secondary schools and um, they don't have roads there's very little public transport so it's um you know they're already isolated um communities live in a lot of poverty that's why our boarding houses run so that we can ensure girls who most likely miss out on education if they come from villages like this can live with us in our boarding houses we build them next to the local schools and we have really transformed, uh, you know, the uh, illiteracy rates have gone down thanks to our work with these teenage girls, getting them through school. They go to university. Some of them have even done master's and are planning PhD. So in 17 years, we've created a huge transformation and we're just desperate now that, first of all, our boarding houses have all been damaged in the quake. We don't know when we'll get them up and running again. And our biggest concern right now is also trying to reach the girls whose villages are inaccessible and they need supplies, as was shared. You know, they're sleeping outside because they either lost their homes or are too scared to live in what's left. And they need blankets and they need food and they need water. And we are trying to raise emergency funds right now for the rebuilding, of course, of our houses, because we, we want to make sure teenage girls are still getting an education. It's so crucial for the entire community that mm -hmm. girls are educated. But we also want to get emergency grants to the families that have lost their homes. When you say uh, that the boarding houses are damaged, you also talked about rebuilding. Uh, in, a, in a few seconds, how severe is the damage? It, it varies, but none of the houses are safe for anyone to live in. And so we, uh, Education for All, will be sending out an assessment out how to what what will be needed and how we can get them fit for purpose again but so, walls have caved in and things are smashed inside and they're yeah it's um it's it's, it's devastating sonia omar ceo of education for all morocco thanks very much for your time thank you so much how much should the U.S. government try to influence social media content, even if that content includes lies? A federal appeals court blocked some federal agencies from contacting platforms like Facebook, YouTube, and X, formerly Twitter, about content moderation. The court says the U.S. government may have coerced the social media companies to violate people's First Amendment rights by blocking content, including misinformation about government COVID-19 initiatives and the recent elections. To talk more about this, we've called someone who studies the intersection 
intersection of government and technology. Mark McCarthy is a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings, which is a research institute, a so-called think tank. His forthcoming book is Regulating Digital Industries. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for being here. Yeah. So, so, Mr. McCarthy, you know, there's this whole backstory to this, which we don't have time to review in detail. But just briefly, conservatives have complained that the administration is trying to coerce social media platforms into silencing their views. Others, including the administration, say they're just trying to keep social media from spreading toxic misinformation that can harm people. So if you're just tapping into this story, at first look, Friday's ruling would appear to be a panel of conservative judges seeking to limit the powers of a liberal executive branch. But you were telling me it is just not that simple. Take it from there. It's not that simple. Federal officials, according to the court, did run afoul of the First Amendment by coercing and significantly encouraging the social media platforms to censor disfavored speech. And they did this by threats of adverse government action like antitrust enforcement and legal reforms. But the court also agreed with the critics in the administration that the original injunction was vague and overly broad, and they significantly narrowed that injunction. How, how might people who use social media feel the impact of this? Well, I, I, think, uh, I think everyone should be concerned about the government conduct uh, in, in this case. I mean, government officials did threaten social media companies with antitrust action and repeal of favorable legal protections. And, you know, we've seen that the Trump administration officials were not shy about trying to intimidate social media companies to go easier on conservative voices. And they might well try to do it again or to discriminate against progressive voices if there's another Trump presidency. So guardrails on government interactions with social media companies are needed to protect all speech, not just conservative speech. On the other hand, as I'm sure you certainly know, that critics have become very alarmed that the, you know, anti-Semitic, racist, misogynistic, you know, violent sort of themes have just kind of exploded in recent years, months, you know, whatever time period you want to pick. And so, so the question is, does the government have any options to discourage the spread of disinformation on social media without trampling on Americans' First Amendment rights? I know that's a big topic, but what do you think? I think the government can clearly talk to social media companies about anything, and it can refer them to um, to any it can refer any speech to them that they think is harmful or illegal, but it may not coerce or significantly encourage a social media company to such a degree that the choice really becomes that of the government. This is a well-known, if not entirely clear standard that's drawn from previous court cases. The, the, the Fifth Circuit tried to get at this issue with a new injunction. It, it said the agencies may not coerce or significantly encourage social media companies to remove content. It said it may not intimate that some form of punishment will follow a failure to comply with a request. And it said agencies may not meaningfully control the social media company's okay. decision. Well, is that clear enough? Okay. I don't think so. Don't I think, think the so. DOJ will appeal to get the Supreme Court's judgment and <laughs> seek a more actionable standard. So more to come. Um, that's fact, that's Mark McCarthy. We have to leave it there, Mr. McCarthy. We have to leave it there, Mr. McCarthy. Mark, Mark McCarthy is a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings. He's got a new book coming out in November, and it's NPR News.
Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Monday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, we go inside Nicaragua in an NPR exclusive revealing what life is like in one of the Western Hemisphere's most authoritarian countries. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, committed to impact investing and socially responsible portfolios for 25 years. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their efforts to protect and preserve the natural world for future generations. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world, our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community, workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield, think really far, like Six, out of this world. Five. And lift off of Artemis One. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Cloudy with highs in the mid-70s today. There's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms mainly between about 2 and 4 this afternoon. Tonight it falls to lows in the mid-60s. Tomorrow mostly cloudy and a high back in the mid-70s with a chance of showers in the afternoon. Right now it's 69 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from 20th Century Studios presenting A Haunting in Venice. From the world of Agatha Christie comes a supernatural thriller. Rated PG-13, only in theaters Friday. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. Hope your Monday morning is beginning well. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Today marks the anniversary of the September 11th attacks. 22 years ago, the day began with clear skies and sunshine and ended in a raw, searing blur for those of us who watched the Twin Towers collapse, the Pentagon burn, and a plane meant for the U.S. Capitol slam into a Pennsylvania field. Close to 3,000 people died on that day, and an untold number were scarred physically and mentally in the attack or its aftermath. But the attacks are fading into history because of time and also because American troops are no longer at war. And Paris Tom Bowman traveled to the Marine Boot Camp at Paris Island, South Carolina. New recruits were born several years after the 9-11 attacks, and even many of their instructors have only vague memories of that morning. It's still pitch black and Marine recruits scurry under spotlights, stacking their weapons and packs, all under the constant screams of drill instructors looming over them. Soon they're filing into a cavernous auditorium, a long flowing stream of shaved heads and green t-shirts. It's time for a history lesson with Staff Sergeant Mark Anthony Ross. Hey, by a show of hands, who was born after 
after the September 11 attacks? Hey, most of us, right? Yes, sir. Hey, put your hands down. Aye, right, sir. Hey, do we know what happened during the 9-11 attacks? Yes, sir. We know what happened. Yes, sir. The ones that may not know what happened, what was going on was our country was under attack from the terrorists. Make sense? Aye, sir. Hey, they came within our borders and it attacked us from the inside. One of the drill sergeants outside was in kindergarten when 9-11 happened, and Sergeant Ross... He was just eight years old when the towers were hit. I was in second grade, and I remember I was in my uh, math class, and my teacher had got a phone call from uh, some family member stating that her uncle, she I was actually working in like the trade center at the point in time, and she lost her uncle to that incident. So um, I just remember her like rushing out, like crying, like emotional, and it ended up cutting us from school and sending us back home to our loved ones. For most Americans, 9-11 is now simply a date to mark much like December 7th with the Pearl Harbor attacks. Even the military war colleges are moving on. The talk is not of 9-11, the subsequent invasion of Afghanistan and lessons learned, but of China and new weapons needed. Recruits are not signing up to fight like their predecessors who joined in a flurry of anger and patriotism. There are more than 200 recruits in this class, and Sergeant Ross asks, who wants to go to war? Only a smattering of hands go up. Today, they're looking for benefits, college money, or like Angel Benitez, 23, personal improvement. I want to develop a warrior ethos, a code, a way of, a way of living, more ethics, more morals. Yeah, that's why I joined, and because it's difficult. Uh, I go towards the difficult things. For 18-year-old Kendall Miller, it's more a call to service. I love my country. I love the United States. And um, I wanted to do anything I could help. I'm able-bodied. I can help any way I can. 40-year-old so Sergeant Major Alkedra Tyler was drawn to the Marines as a high school student for an opportunity to travel and get an education. Then 9-11 happened. Tyler was 18, already signed with the Marines and working as a nursing home aide. She glanced at a TV and saw the towers burning. I literally thought, oh, my God. And then I thought, how many people are in that building? She called her recruiter and asked if she could leave for boot camp sooner. The recruiter was like, are you sure you want to do this? And I said, yes, I want to do this. Did you not see what happened on the news? I want to do this. So he asked me how soon did I want to leave? And I was like, I'll leave tomorrow if you tell me I can leave tomorrow. She ended up with multiple deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan, fixing generators in local villages. A few years later, First Sergeant Brian Deere joined up to fight too, still eager to avenge 9-11. In recruit training, that's all they pitched to us. Going to war, going to war, going to war, going to war. Well, this is, uh, and that, again, and that's what 2005, we, right? 2000, and that's what we all wanted. We're definitely going to war. And we're all talking about, I can't wait to go to war. You know, I don't want this to ever happen in my country again. When he worked as a drill sergeant in 2016, there was still an ongoing military mission in Afghanistan. So it was easy. You know, I used to tell my recruits, the good majority of you are going to go. Now I can't use that. Now what we're using are benefits, educational benefits, VA loan. Those are the things that we're using to keep motivating them. They can't pay for college, so that's why they joined the Marine Corps. Even among these young Marine recruits, a few still feel the tug, the sadness of 9-11. Jake McKay, 18, says a close family friend died in one of the towers. The story is what we heard is that he was helping people evacuate. He ran in and was helping people get out. Into one of the towers. Yes, sir. And he was crushed by a support beam and it broke his legs. So... I feel like it's still a recovery with my family. Um, there's still pain that comes around, but 
It's kind of fading a bit. It's, it's fading. Time. It's becoming more of a remembrance than a, than a grief. John Michael Vigiano steps into the shade after training on an obstacle course with his fellow recruits. He's drenched in sweat, pulls off his helmet and gloves. September 11th is never far from his thoughts. His father was a New York City police detective that morning and rushed into one of the towers with other cops. He didn't make it out. An uncle also died that day. It's my life, and it's something that I think about every year, every day. His mother was also a cop on leave and caring for him. He was just three months old. She said that I saved her life because I kept her out of work and she was focusing on me rather than all the dark things that are going on in the world. At the family home on Long Island, there's a kind of shrine to his dad. There's a portrait in the dining room, along with his ID card, badge, and medals he earned over the years. And today, even though he's still in training, they'll all reach out. We just try to stay together as a family, whether that be getting lunch or having a barbecue. We just sit together and we talk between me and my two brothers and my grandmother, hmm. my mother. He says he'll do his time in the Marines, then head back to New York to become a firefighter like his grandfather. Tom Bowman, NPR News, Paris Island, South Carolina. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.50 on WBWAR's Morning Edition, the story of a couple in Vermont who turned their lawn into a meadow during the pandemic to bring their community together. It's 7.29. Use the WBWAR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Longy School of Music's free Gessner Schocken concert. October 4th, pianist Unbi Kim explores family and identity issues in an immersive multimedia performance. And Bass Barry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Rescue crews in Morocco are searching for survivors in the debris of the earthquake that hit Friday, killing more than 2,400 people. Destruction is widespread. NPR's Lauren Frere is covering the aftermath in the old city of Marrakesh. I've been driving around the city. Asphalt roads are cracked. Uh, roads are closed as the military tries to repair them quickly. There's been a lot of focus on the walled old city of Marrakesh. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. A minaret from a centuries-old mosque there fell down. Lots of broken glass. But there are also lots of tourists. Marrakesh remains a tourist hub. And so you've got this eerie juxtaposition of foreigners in Hawaiian shirts and sunglasses roaming around taking selfies in the rubble. President Biden is on his way back to the United States after an Asian trip that took him to India and Vietnam. His last stop was Hanoi. Before he left, the president visited a memorial to the late Senator John McCain. McCain was a prisoner for more than five years during the Vietnam War. Now, during the president's visit, Vietnam elevated the U.S. to the level of a comprehensive strategic partner. 
On his way back to the U.S., Biden will observe the anniversary of the September 11th attacks during his stop in Alaska. This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston's preliminary election is tomorrow, and two city councilors are fighting to keep their seats after a slew of embarrassing headlines. WBUR's Walter Wuthman has more on the races in District 5 and District 6. Councilor Kendra Lara's summer car crash has changed her campaign talking points. She's apologized for driving without a license in an unregistered vehicle. Lara hopes her progressive policy record will help her. Because it is easy uh, to support someone when they are in good standing. And it's much, much harder to really show grace and to show up at a moment like this. Allegations also surround Councillor Ricardo Arroyo, who's faced calls to step down for his role in an election meddling case. We've done everything we can do to speak directly to voters, try to make sure I'm accountable to voters in a real way. If folks have questions that they want to throw at me, I'm happy to answer any and all of them. Two candidates from each district will advance after the preliminary. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Eleven people are recovering from injuries after a walkway collapse near Brunswick, Maine. The wooden structure at Doubling Point Lighthouse in Erosic gave the gave way Saturday. Some victims fell 8 to 10 feet. The state's scenic lighthouses were open to the public as part of Maine Open Lighthouse Day. Former New England quarterback Tom Brady will be inducted into the Patriots Hall of Fame next summer. Patriots owner Robert Kraft made the announcement at a halftime ceremony honoring the quarterback last night. Brady played in New England for 20 years before going to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for three seasons. All our lives take us on different journeys. They take us to different places. They bring different people into our lives. But one thing I am sure of, and that will never change, is that I am a patriot for life. The Pats are waiving the four-year waiting period to induct the seven-time Super Bowl champion. It's 733. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. Also last night in Foxborough, the Patriots' regular season got underway with a loss. They fell to the Eagles 25-20. It was a better outcome for the Red Sox in Fenway yesterday. The team defeated the Baltimore Orioles 7-3. The Sox host the Yankees tonight for the first of a four-game series. Some patchy fog this morning. Then it'll be overcast today and in the mid-70s. There's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms around mid-afternoon. Tonight, cloudy in mid-60s with a chance of more rain overnight. Tomorrow, starts with more patchy fog, then we'll have a mostly cloudy day back in the mid-70s with showers possible in the afternoon. Right now at 69 degrees in Boston, you're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Over the past decade, Nicaragua has become one of the most authoritarian countries in the Western Hemisphere. For more than a year, the country has also shut out foreign journalists. But NPR's Ada Peralta managed to get in, and he's here to bring us some of his exclusive on-the-ground reporting. Ada, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Michelle. So before we get into your reporting, can you remind us how Nicaragua got to this point? So you need to know one name, President Daniel Ortega, and he led a successful revolution against the military dictatorship in the 70s. He lost an election in 1990, but he came back to power in 2007. And since then, he has done everything to remain in power. But things got really bad uh, beginning in 2018. That's when thousands of Nicaraguans took to the streets and they called for his ouster. Ortega responded with violence. Some 300 protesters were killed. And then Ortega bulldozed the opposition. He jailed nearly all of his opponents. He went after the Catholic Church. He closed down newspapers. Whole newsrooms are in exile these days. And immigration authorities started denying entry to foreign journalists. So so how did you manage to get in? And I do want to mention that you are now safely out, so we're not compromising your safety yeah. um, by telling us this. How'd you get in? I have a Nicaraguan passport, and I went through a rural land border. Uh, my bet was that authorities wouldn't ask me too many questions, and I was right. That's how I got in. Okay, so take us there. What did you see? What did you hear? So one of the first places I went to was Masaya, and that's a little colonial town that was the epicenter of the rebellion in 2018. These days, everything points to normal. People are out shopping, going to church, to school, and the rebellion that once burned through these streets is extinguished. I meet Graciela, who once volunteered to treat wounded protesters in the back room of a business. She asks that we not use her full name because she fears retribution. In 2018, her whole family joined the demonstrations. They thought President Ortega was stealing elections and laying the groundwork to rule forever. She remembers her dad gave them some prescient advice. My dad worked for the government and he told us, we have to keep going, we have to fight. Ortega has to go. If not, what is coming is going to be so much worse. A few months later, the government launched a ruthless attack. Graciela remembers police going house to house looking for organizers. Graciela ended up in hiding for months. And when she emerged, the uprising was a memory. Graciela tried to live her life. She got a job, she kept quiet, but even so, at one point police raided her home. They took her things and accused her of helping to organize a rebellion. And from then on, they told us, don't you dare do anything against the government. At around the same time, her dad got sick. She took him to a public hospital, and there, he got even sicker. I ran across the hospital. I cried. I shouted for a doctor asking for help and no one helped. Her dad died, and hanging over her was this idea that he was allowed to die because of his politics. And what could we do? We can't do anything. We live with this fear that we can't speak, that we can't complain. The neighbor turns on a faucet, and Graciela grows nervous. She takes a deep breath. Maybe they're listening. Our conversation ends there. Carolina Jimenez Sandoval of the Washington Office on Latin America calls Nicaragua a user's manual for authoritarian leaders. In Nicaragua, says Jimenez Sandoval, Ortega came to power legitimately. Ortega was elected 
But how then he changed all the rules of the game to stay in power is a different story. And I think it's a story that we see repeated in, in many countries across the region. Ortega changed the electoral laws. He captured the judiciary. He passed Soviet-style laws to destroy Nicaragua's civil society. In 2021, Ortega imprisoned potential presidential candidates. I don't know how many countries have that very sad record of putting seven presidential candidates in prison or under house arrest. But perhaps Ortega's most impressive feat, says Jimenez Sandoval, is that he has proven to other authoritarian leaders in the Americas that an iron-fisted rule can survive opposition and sanctions from the international community. The main problem when authoritarianism becomes rooted is that it shows that the international system has few tools to combat this type of government. I sought comment from the Nicaraguan government about all the allegations in this story. We sent emails to Vice President Rosario Murillo, and we also emailed and called the Nicaraguan embassies in the United States and Mexico. They have not responded. In the capital, Managua, I hear that President Daniel Ortega will be giving a public speech celebrating the 44th anniversary of the triumph of the revolution. The radio is full of propaganda. En Nicaragua, Comandante José Daniel Ortega Saavedra, Presidente de la República de Nicaragua. Suddenly, a city that had seemed normal now has police officers on every corner. New checkpoints have been erected around a stadium near Ortega's home. Only a selected few are invited to the president's speech. The rest will have to watch it on the big screen set up across the country. I end up at a park, and it feels like a party. People are drinking, they're chatting, and on the big screen, we see the country's dynasty. President Ortega wears a red members-only jacket and a baseball cap. Rosario Murillo, his wife and vice president, wears a flowing pink dress and matching visor. In his speech, Ortega gives a typical history lesson, full of disdain for American imperialism. We wanted peace. We fought against the tyranny imposed by the junkies because we wanted peace. But Murillo is different. She delivers spoken word poetry. How is it possible to understand that of sorcerers of snakes, of treacherous vipers, fabricators of lies? It's clear she's talking about journalists. How to understand those who, in shameless and diabolical pestilences, close themselves to the cosmos? I look around and almost everyone is wearing red and black, the ruling party colors. I wonder what would happen if the crowd knew I was a journalist. For a moment, I let paranoia seep into my thoughts. For a moment, I feel the weight of living here. This is a country soaked in fear. You watch your back, you watch your words, you hope that a neighbor, a co-worker, a family member won't betray you. But I realize I'm not the only one who's scared. Fear runs so deep that even the president and vice president don't trust their countrymen enough to hold a real public rally. Ada Peralta, NPR News, Managua, Nicaragua. You can listen to an extended version of this story on the Sunday Story podcast, and we hope you will. This is NPR News.
Thanks for listening to WBUR on this Monday morning. Coming up at the top of the hour, we get an update on recovery efforts in Morocco after the devastating earthquake that killed 2,100 people. Showers and thunderstorms possible today, mainly around mid-afternoon, otherwise mid-70s and cloudy. Still overcast tonight as it falls to the mid-60s, tomorrow back to the mid-70s with another chance of afternoon showers. Right now, it's 69 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, committed to being a partner in renewable energy from consultation to installation. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com. And Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities, directtire.com. The co-founder of Cambridge-based CRISPR Therapeutics is leaving the company. Roger Novak was the gene editing company's first CEO. He's currently the president and chair of the company's board. His last day is Friday. A new report finds that Worcester Polytechnic Institute has one of the least economically diverse campuses. The report from the New York Times shows that only 10 percent of students there receive Pell Grants. Holy Cross College also had low numbers. Only 13 percent of students there receive Pell Grants. Both schools say they're making progress in enrolling more students who use that financial aid. After three years, the building of a longtime Hanover restaurant may have a new tenant. An Italian-inspired restaurant called Sage and Salt is set to open at the new Squires location next spring. Hanover officials say plans for the property have been up in the air since a proposal for a Mexican restaurant there flopped last year. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from SmartMouth committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. Smart Mouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters, or at smartmouth.com. And from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We have the story of a couple who moved from New York to Chittenden, Vermont in 2019, just in time for the pandemic. When the pandemic hit, their yard became their refuge, but they hated all the mowing, so they plowed up big patches of grass and planted more than an acre's worth of wildflowers. Vermont Publix Nina Keck watched her neighbor's colorful meadows become a bright spot in the community. Natalie Gilliard and Jonathan Yako walk me past their house to what used to be a grassy hillside. So this is where it all began. Yes, this was the very first meadow that we started. This is year three, am I right? Three? Yep. Yes. The lawn has been replaced by thousands of flowers, a lacy quilt of blues, pinks, purples, and varying shades of orange, shimmering with butterflies. So right over here, you can really kind of get into it without stepping on any of the flowers or worrying about disturbing any habitats. And right here, there's just so many bright blue forget-me-nots. And then right behind them is all the yellow coreopsis, and it's just such a cool visual with all these colors right here. 
And I can't believe how many bees I'm seeing. They're everywhere. It's amazing watching them. It's mostly honeybees and some bumblebees, but a lot more honeybees than I've ever seen in one place, which is so exciting for me. <laughs> oh, there's new stuff. I just noticed there's some sweet William coming up right here. This purple right here. Oh, wow, it's like beautiful. Stars. And it's always, you don't know exactly what's going to come up or when it's going to come up. And that's part of the magic of it is that every couple of weeks, it's, it looks totally different. The other part of the magic is the way the wildflowers have helped Jonathan and Natalie become part of their new community. When they moved in, they didn't know anyone, and the pandemic was depressing. The flowers broke through all that. We had such an amazing reaction. People brought us bouquets that they had made, and I've met so many people at the transfer station that have said, I've seen your meadow, and I have no idea who they are. And they go, oh, thank you for the meadow. We love driving by and seeing it. Just like, oh, like, that's amazing. I, I also feel like just even when we're meeting new people, we can just be like, oh, yeah, we're the house with the wildflower meadow. And people are like, oh, I love that meadow. It's so cool. It made us so happy. This summer, they planted an even larger meadow with their next-door neighbor on her property, a local farmer they become friends with help them till the soil. Having people that we've never even met stop by or send us cards thanking us for doing that, it's such the community I want to live in. What's really exciting? They say their wildflowers have begun to spread. For NPR News, I'm Nina Kak in Chittenden, Vermont. This afternoon, and all things considered, millions of Americans soon have to start payments on their federal student loans for the first time in three and a half years. So is the financial system ready to help people resume? Stream NPR on your smartphone or computer or listen on the radio. Coming up at 8.20 on WBUR's Morning Edition, we learn about an effort by some Massachusetts doctors to address loneliness as a national epidemic by helping people make friends. It's 7.49. China's real estate and construction industries are struggling, and that's causing serious economic ripple effects. People is no confident anymore. It's no money. Real thing is people don't have money in their head anymore. I don't know why, but that's an everyday situation right now. I'm Elsa Chang. Fears of stagnation in China on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities essential for healthy democracy, knightfoundation.org. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. At least 2,100 people are dead and thousands more are injured after a 6.8 magnitude earthquake hit Morocco. The Food and Drug Administration is set to approve a new COVID-19 booster as infection rates climb. And several employees are injured after an explosion at an Archer Daniels Midland facility in Illinois last night. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
WBUR supporters include AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. Mid-70s today under overcast skies that'll likely give way to showers and thunderstorms around mid-afternoon. Tonight, cloudy and mid-60s with a chance of more rain overnight. Tomorrow, mostly overcast and mid-70s again, also with a chance of afternoon showers. Right now, it's 69 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Lauren Groff's novels and short stories deal with big topics like marriage, feminism, and God. Critics and general readers love it. One reason each of her last three books was nominated for the National Book Award. Her new novel, The Vaster Wilds, is a tight and tense story about a girl on the run set in 1610 Jamestown. She spoke with NPR's Andrew Limbong about what drew her to that period of American history. We met at a library at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. The semester wasn't quite in full swing yet, but there was enough activity on campus that people stopped Groff to say hi, take a selfie, she signed a couple books. But we were here on a mission to ogle an old book, a narrative of the captivity and restoration of Mrs. Mary Rowlandson. As I understand it, it was like low-key propaganda? It was high-key propaganda. It was high-key propaganda. (laughs) Mary Rowlandson was a colonist who was kidnapped for ransom by indigenous people and released. This book was her first-hand account of the experience. First published in 1682, it was super popular at the time, and it became a staple of the genre known as captivity narratives. These are not subtle texts whatsoever. I mean, they, they are meant to basically justify genocide and sort of the the European expansion across North America. At the same time, it is true, especially in this one, Mrs. Mary Rollinson's um, captivity narrative, there are moments of actual humanity that are sort of boiling up through the story that is being told. These stories were the starting point for Graf's new novel, The Vaster Wilds. It takes place in Jamestown, 1610, during a period historians call the Starving Time. The Powhatan people have the colony under siege, and colonists are hungry and sick, dying or dead. Can I have you read a little bit? Oh, sure. Graf's protagonist, a girl with many names, was adopted from an English poorhouse and taken to the colony by a well-off family. At the start of the book, she's run away, and she's scared. But she's starting to question all the stories she's been told about this new world and its murderous inhabitants. And likewise, while the men of the fort whispered and spoke these stories of fear, there was a part of the girl that resisted, that sang in low counterpoints, reminding her of the bridge over the river in the city of her birth, and the way the enemies of the late queen had had their heads stuck aloft on pikes, their beards flapping in a hard wind, and their mouths open in death, so it seemed that they were silently screaming. And all the while, beneath this vaunting of death, the carts heavy with their vegetables, their turnips, and their cabbages rolled serenely on. And the farmers thought of the beer and bread awaiting them, and took no notice of these horrid tokens of death. For, verily, godlessness and murder, the girl knew, were certainly not limited to the people of this new country. What I was at least attempting to do in this book was trying to show the mindset of a person who 
comes to the new world, uh, sort of having been raised in Christianity, right, in the, the Protestantism of England, London at that time, um, really believes narratives that have been told to her about her own worth, about the worth of um, the people around her. And then through the famine in the starving time in Jamestown, uh, she starts to lose some of those narratives. And then through the really um, rugged and actually kind of somewhat also ecstatic um, motion of her body through the landscape, she starts to see even more past the, the scrim of the narratives that have been received in her. The stories we tell ourselves what women are told about their worth, the stuff about bodily ecstasy in the face of God. It's similar territory to Graf's last book, Matrix, about a medieval nunnery. Graf was actually in the middle of writing The Vaster Wilds when the idea for Matrix came to her, so she knocked that out first before coming back to Vaster Wilds. She says the two books are part of an even larger project. I have this idea to make a triptych, so not trilogy, but a triptych, where I'm sort of seeing from the outside about a thousand years of how we got to where we are now. So Matrix is um, 12th century, right? Catholic Church. And then Vaster Wilds is uh, 1610, obviously very Protestant. And uh, the third one, which is killing me, actually, I'm dying. It's like it's murdering me in my <laughs> sleep at night, um, is uh, set now. And so what I really want to do is talk about ideas of, of God, right, and the changeable ideas of God and how those ideas have um, sent us careening through the Anthropocene um, to the, the cusp of absolute catastrophic climate times at the moment, which is where we are right now. Graf's been thinking about the end of the world a lot lately. <laughs> she tells me she's a secret survivalist these days. No guns, but she's stocked up on food and other supplies should her family need it. And Vaster Wilds calls to mind the famous stories of men surviving alone in the wild. You know, think like Ernest Hemingway or Cormac McCarthy or even Gary Paulson. But while the Western canon is littered with narratives of men as singular heroes, Graf found that historical fiction can help untether us from saviors. It can democratize history in a way. It doesn't have to be Napoleon standing on the top of a mountain, right? It can be the masses of people swarming to, to create the, that historical moment that could be the interesting thing, not, not this single hero, which I find a very corrosive and almost evil narrative that we have bought into and we keep perpetuating the single hero. And I think that that has brought us immense grief culturally. Yeah. Because, like, everyone has to deal with the world ending. I mean, right? And not everyone is the great hero, right? Sometimes Elon, you just die. Sometimes <laughs> you just die. Elon yeah. Musk is not going to save us. Right. Technology is not going to save us. The only thing that's going to save us is all of us working together. That's it. We cannot rely on one person. If we think we're going to rely on one person, we are going to die. If that sounds heavy and harsh... Well, the natural world of the Vaster Wilds is heavy and harsh. There's all these scenes of the girl hungrily and miserably facing nature, starting fires and hunting food in the cold and wet of winter. Because what else is she supposed to do but survive? Andrew Limbaugh and Fair News. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solutions simulator, climateinteractive.org, and thoughtforms-core.com. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. International aid groups are struggling to get to remote parts of Morocco after a historic earthquake that killed 2,100 people. It's Monday, September 11th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, 150,000 auto workers could walk off the job this week if they don't get a new contract. If they want to be competitive and have a good workforce, they're going to have to pay to show that, you know, we deserve more. Plus, we mark 50 years since a U.S.-backed coup installed a dictatorship in Chile. Also this hour, Boston voters are about to decide the fates of two incumbent city councilors fighting for re-election amid scandals. My opponents think that what voters care about the most is what they read in the newspaper. And the more they do that, the less they connect with voters about what actually moves them to vote. Patriots lose their home opener, cloudy in 70s today. It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden has concluded his visit to Asia and has departed his last stop in Vietnam. NPR's Asma Khalid is traveling with the president. Biden came here to Hanoi to formally forge deeper ties with Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam is now putting the United States in its highest diplomatic category that's on par with China. This is really quite significant. Vietnam only places a few other countries in this top tier. And we heard President Biden describe this as being a historic moment that is overcoming a, quote, bitter past. NPR's Asma Khalid reporting. Biden is flying toward Alaska. He'll stop in Anchorage to observe the anniversary of the September 11th attacks. Vice President Harris is visiting New York City today to commemorate the 22nd anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. From member station WNYC, David First has more. Vice President Harris will visit the National September 11 Memorial and Museum for the commemoration ceremony, along with Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. St. Paul's Cathedral will ring its bell of hope at exactly 8.46 a.m., the time when the first plane crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. And starting at dusk, the museum will light up the night sky with two twin light beams as part of its annual Tribute in Light. On his way home from Asia, President Biden will mark the occasion at a military base in Anchorage, Alaska, and plans to meet with service members, first responders, and their families. For NPR News, I'm David First in New York. A federal trial is set to begin today, challenging a new Texas voting bill. Texas Public Radio's Jerry Clayton has more. The sweeping voting reform bill was passed during a special legislative session in 2021. The law criminalizes certain types of voting assistance and certain types of political speech in the physical presence of a ballot. Critics have called the legislation voter suppression, and lawmakers protested the law in 2021 by breaking quorum in the state legislature. 
The lawsuit was filed by several voting rights advocates, including the Texas Civil Rights Project, the ACLU of Texas, and others. They say that several provisions in SB 1 violate the Voting Rights Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Rehabilitation Act, and the U.S. Constitution. The trial is being held in San Antonio's Western District of Texas U.S. Courthouse. I'm Jerry Clayton in San Antonio. There have been endless aftershocks in Morocco following Friday's deadly earthquake. Its magnitude was 6.8. Moroccan authorities have again today increased the death toll. It's now at more than 2,400 people. More than 2,000 others are injured. People are sleeping on the streets in Morocco as rescuers continue to pull victims out of the rubble. The United Nations is now estimating that 300,000 people in Morocco have been affected by the earthquake and the aftershocks. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston City Council President Ed Flynn is supporting the mayor's proposed ordinance to quickly remove tents in the area of Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard. Speaking on WCBB's On the Record, Flynn called for a state of emergency to allow police to remove the tents immediately. When there's escalating violence, drug trafficking, guns and and knives in that area, there are people being exploited. The police are doing an exceptional job, but it's not safe for residents. It's not safe for the community. It's certainly not safe for anyone that's living there. Flynn says he understands the difficult task of providing care to those in need while also addressing the crime and illegal activity at the encampment. A Seekonk police officer is dead after a fatal motorcycle crash in Somerset this weekend. 28-year-old Courtney DeForitas served on the force for the last three years. She was off duty at the time of the crash early Saturday. DeForitas was a passenger on the motorcycle. The driver was also killed. A woman injured by a lightning strike on a Boston beach this weekend remains in critical condition. The woman was walking her dog at the time. That dog ran away when the strike left its 31-year-old owner unconscious. State police tell the Boston Herald the dog has been found and returned to the woman's family. This evening, the Massachusetts Fallen Heroes Organization will hold a vigil honoring the more than 2,000 victims of the 9-11 terror attacks. Executive Director Dan Magoon says the event will also honor more than 300 Massachusetts service members who have died since the attacks. Veterans, Gold Star families, and the general public come together to obviously pay tribute to the ones that we lost on 9-11 and obviously the service members that have died since. 9-11 to us is a special day. Tonight's vigil will get underway at 6 in the seaport. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate. The Patriots couldn't keep up with the Eagles yesterday during their first game of the regular season. Philadelphia took an early 16-point lead and ultimately hung on to defeat the Pats 25-20. The Red Sox are coming off a win over the Baltimore Orioles. First baseman Tristan Casas hit a three-run home run to secure the 7-3 victory. The Sox host the Yankees tonight in the first of a four-game series. We have some patchy fog this morning, and it'll be cloudy today with a chance of afternoon showers and thunderstorms. The high will be near 76. Tonight, temperatures fall to a low around 66, and there's a chance of more showers overnight. Tomorrow, another foggy start to the morning with clouds 
during the day and a high back at 76. There's another chance of rain in the afternoon. Right now it's 69 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Aid workers from several countries are on the ground in Morocco in the aftermath of a magnitude 6.8 earthquake over the weekend. More than 2,100 people are known to have died, and thousands more are injured as recovery and rescue efforts continue. Many families are unsure whether their homes are safe and fear more aftershocks. Shema Muhachin has been sleeping on a patch of grass near the sidewalk with her parents, grandparents, and two younger siblings. We're actually terrified, like I'm shaking right now. Uh, I don't know what to do, like I can't think of anything besides the earthquake, like I'm so scared. John Johnson is a nurse practitioner with Doctors Without Borders. That's an independent group that offers medical care in areas that desperately need it. He's in Amzmiz, Morocco. That's a town near the epicenter of Friday's earthquake. John Johnson, thanks so much for being there and thanks so much for talking with us. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So tell me what you're seeing there right now. Uh, So we're not far from the epicenter of the earthquake. Um, There was a a clinic here that uh, has probably been compromised, so they've set up tents outside uh, because of concerns that the building might collapse. Uh, In the tents outside, uh, basically it's a a big triage unit where they've been seeing patients who have been brought from the villages around around Emizmiz. And then uh, from here, severe cases are sent to Marrakesh, uh, and cases that can be treated uh, here or, or treated here. Um, the, the wounded start coming in usually in the mornings. Uh, this is uh, the, really the, the second uh, full day of, of the rescue efforts. And, um, and uh, people are uh, basically triaged based on their severity uh, and, and sent where they can go. Um, there's a, a big mobilization from uh, the Moroccan government and military. You have uh, ambulances driving around searching for victims. Uh, teams with tractors uh, doing search and rescue in the villages, and uh, and basically, like uh, like you said earlier, there's, there's people sleeping on the sidewalk because uh, the buildings are all uh, compromised, and there's a big fear of aftershocks. Can, can you just describe what the most urgent needs of the survivors are right now? Well, I, I think I think there's an urgent need, of of course, for uh, for medical victims uh, for surgical care. I, I think as the days go on, you know uh, the. the the people that are going to survive will have been will have been found and, and treated, uh, and then the other needs that are going to be very apparent soon are going to be for shelter uh, and for you know food and water. We've seen distributions coming through, which is great, um, but I think you know people need need places to stay. They can't be be sleeping outside forever, uh, and I think also uh, like you heard from the girl earlier, uh, people are shook, and I think they need uh, urgent. Uh, let's let's say mental health care uh, or mental health support because uh, I think everyone's been very shook up by this event and and uh, I think people need urgent psychological care. Is that possible? Do you think that can happen? I mean, I think I think that sort of care is a lot of, of community care. It's, it's people listening to uh, to each other and being able to talk about what happened because uh, this is a big traumatic event. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I I think it can. And how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Uh, we arrived on Saturday night uh, and, and came directly to Amis Mies. Um, we are 
we're not necessarily able to work in the country yet, but we're doing what we can and uh, finding out where the needs are and if there's if there's gaps we can fill. But the Minister of Health and uh, Moroccan government have doing have been doing a great job so far. That is John Johnson. He's with Doctors Without Borders. He's in Morocco. As we said, Doctors Without Borders is an independent group that offers medical care where people need it most. John Johnson, thanks so much for joining us and talking with us about this. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. In this country, here's something that may shape the news of this week. On Friday, 150,000 auto workers could walk off the job potentially bringing the operations of the big three U.S. automakers to a halt for General Motors and Stellantis, the parent company of Chrysler. Workers want a 46% wage hike over four years. A lot of unions have demanded big raises this year, and some are winning. NPR's Danielle Kay reports. What the United Auto Workers, or UAW, is pushing for might seem shocking, but not to Marcelina Pedraza, a Ford electrician in Chicago. If they want to be competitive and have a good workforce, they're going to have to pay to show that, you know, we deserve more. Workers like Pedraza say companies can afford to raise workers' pay by a lot. The Detroit three automakers made $21 billion in profit collectively in just the first half of this year, at the same time that workers feel they've been struggling. Everything's going up, right? Like the cost of food, gas, you know, mortgage interest rates, and it's just, it's not enough. The last time UAW signed a contract was in 2019. That deal came with significantly less, two annual wage hikes, 3% each. That range has been the norm for many years. But these days, much higher wage demands aren't that unusual. So far in 2023, workers all over are fighting for them. And some unions have been able to get pay raises of almost 50% in their new contracts, like American Airlines pilots. Dennis Tager is a 737 pilot and a spokesperson for the Allied Pilots Association. He says the four-year, 46% pay raise comes after years of stagnant wages. The bottom line is it's been a long time since there's been any financial gain. Another group of workers who've seen their paychecks go up recently, 340,000 UPS workers. They were on the brink of a strike. But then in July, the Teamsters Union secured a 48% average wage increase over the course of the five-year contract for existing part-time workers. Jennifer Hancock started out decades ago as a part-time package sorter at UPS in Richmond, Virginia, making $8 an hour. But she says workers need a lot more now to keep up with the cost of living. For a part-timer who is hired now, they would need to be making somewhere in the ballpark of $25 an hour to have the same buying power that I would have had back in 1991. Union contracts ratified in 2022 gave workers the highest average pay raise in more than three decades. That's according to Bloomberg Law labor data. It's a trend that's holding up in 2023, and it's a shift away from decades of management leverage over workers. And so this is a pivotal year. Tom Cohan is a professor of work and employment at MIT. Now it's time to catch up, catch up on losses due to inflation, catch up in terms of a better distribution of the profits of the company. There's been a shortage of workers in many industries, and after putting their health at risk during the pandemic, a lot of frontline workers are feeling emboldened to ask for more. But auto workers might not be able to repeat the success of the pilots and UPS workers. Flights and package deliveries would halt without those workers. Harry Katz of Cornell University says automakers have non-union factories that operate in the South, and they can shift production overseas. The auto workers have strong leverage, but not exceptional leverage. 
The car companies so far have responded with offers of much smaller pay increases of 9 to 10 percent. UAW President Sean Fain calls them, quote unquote, insulting. He says workers are ready to go on strike if necessary after their contract expires on Thursday. Danielle Kay, NPR News. We think the Food and Drug Administration is about to approve a new set of COVID-19 booster shots. And this brings up a lot of questions. Who should get another booster? When? And how well will the new shots work? NPR health correspondent Rob Stein has answers as best we know them. Hey there, Rob. Hey there, Steve. I just want to note, I, I had to like kind of scratch my head and try even to remember when I got the last COVID booster. Can you remind us how this one fits in? Yeah, yeah, I totally lost count of how many shots I've gotten and when. The new boosters are updated versions of the Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines. They're formulated to help people fight off a relatively recent Omicron subvariant called XBB15. The idea is the new shots will shore up people's fading immunity as we head into the winter. So who should get another shot? Yeah, so the FDA is expected to okay the new boosters any day now for the same people who have been eligible for the COVID shots, anyone aged six months and older. Then the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention would very quickly issue recommendations for exactly who should get boosted. You know, Steve, it seems pretty likely that the CDC will recommend the shots for those COVID can really be the most dangerous, like, you know, older people and those with other health problems. We'll have to see what the CDC says about younger, otherwise healthy people, including kids. Some outside experts I've been talking to say everyone should get another booster. You know, the cut their chances of getting COVID and the risk of winding up in the hospital or dying. Here's Deepta Bhattacharya from the University of Arizona College of Medicine. COVID-19 is not a pleasant thing to get, even if you're not at particularly high risk of getting really sick. Um, and so to the extent that the vaccines reduce that chance, and I'm pretty sure they will, then again, unless you have got some really compelling reason not to get it, you should probably go ahead and get it. Others say the focus should really be on those most vulnerable and just be an option for everyone else, since most people are still pretty well protected against getting seriously ill from COVID. But, you know, Steve, one big question is how popular will these new shots be? Most people never got the last one. Okay, so we've been hearing about new variants. You mentioned one of them. Uh, I think it's not the only one. What's known? Yeah, so, you know, one way to start thinking about these vaccines is, is like the flu shots. Every year we get flu shots that have been updated based on the best guess about which viruses are most likely to be infecting people the following fall and winter. Some years it's a good match, other years not so much. The federal government picked the strain for these new COVID boosters in the spring. The bad news is that strain's been replaced by newer evolutions of Omicron that spread even easier. The good news mm. is the new shots seem a close enough match to still do a decent job, even against the latest variant raising the most concerns. Should people think very hard about the timing if they do get a booster? Yeah, you know, so the new shots will become available at doctors' offices and drugstores pretty quickly after the FDA announcement and the CDC recommendations. And the CDC has a meeting scheduled for tomorrow to make those marching orders. We'll have to see what the CDC says about exactly when people should get the jabs and how long to wait after the last shot or infection. Some experts I've been talking to say people should get a shot as soon as a couple or three months later. Others say wait four to six. And some people may wait to try to time it to when they are most likely to catch the virus. Like, you know, when they're traveling and visiting people over the holidays. And Pierce Robstein, thanks. You bet, Steve.
This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. You're starting your Monday with WBOR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we get a recap of President Biden's trip to Asia, which closed with a visit to Vietnam, spotlighting new business deals and partnerships between the two countries. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Museum of Science. Maneuver through vibrant, mind-bending illusions, 3D puzzles, and kinetic play at the new traveling exhibit, Mazes and Brain Games. Tickets at MOS.org. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution bars from office any public official involved in an insurrection. You could say that January 6th is like the most serious attack on our government, right, domestically, that we've had since the Civil War. Can legal reasoning withstand political reality when it comes to Donald Trump? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Foggy this morning and cloudy with highs in the mid-70s today. There's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms mainly between about 2 and 4 this afternoon. Tonight it falls to lows in the mid-60s. Tomorrow mostly cloudy and a high back in the mid-70s with a chance of showers in the afternoon. Right now it's 69 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. From PBS with The Bussing Battleground, American Experience tells the story of the bitter struggle to integrate Boston schools after a court mandate, premiering tonight at 9, 8 central on PBS. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Our health can be affected by loneliness and social isolation. Insurers and health care providers are starting to pay more attention to these risks. Priyanka Dale McCluskey of member station WBUR tells us about a program in Massachusetts that's trying to combat loneliness by helping people make friends. The pool is a favorite hangout spot for Jason Silverman and his friend Melissa Mills. They sip slushies, and Silverman climbs the stairs to the water slide. He lands with a big splash. You're fast on that slide. Silverman has Down syndrome, and talking is sometimes difficult, but he has ways of communicating. He smiles, sighs, and sometimes leads Mills by the arm. They meet once a month and go to the gym in Framingham, Massachusetts. They always start with a treadmill or bike. You're doing it. One minute, one minute and a half left. 
Then Mills helps Silverman order lunch at a cafe. Cheeseburger. Cheeseburger? Yes. Okay. This relationship started through a program called the Friendship Project. Its goal is to reduce loneliness and social isolation, especially for people with disabilities and mental health conditions who are more likely to feel lonely. And Mills says they hit it off right away. And we laugh and don't worry about anything when we're together. There's no stress, there's no pressure. We're just here to hang out. For Silverman, the outings are a break from the mornings he spends watching TV alone. His mom, Stephanie Lynch, says he seems happier. And it's just human. People need companionship. They need to feel part of something. And I think he really feels part of something when he goes to the gym. The Friendship Project is run by a human services agency called Advocates. Jeff Kielsen is senior vice president. If there's ways that we could really support people by connecting them with others, then we absolutely should do that. There are health and financial imperatives too. A growing body of research shows when people are lonely, they're at higher risk of becoming sick with illnesses like heart disease, stroke, and dementia. And Kielsen says it's too early for data, but he hopes the program will reduce some hospital visits. A lot of people, particularly with mental health conditions, use emergency rooms just to connect with people. Advocates is working with some health insurers to expand the initiative beyond people with disabilities and mental health conditions. A recent report from the U.S. Surgeon General underscores the urgency of this work. It says loneliness is a national epidemic and raises the risk of premature death as much as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Our social networks seem to be shrinking. Daniel Cox is senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. His research finds Americans have fewer close friends than they used to. Cox says he's heartened to see more healthcare leaders focus on friendship. If the goal is to help people live longer, healthier lives, this is a pretty obvious intervention. Friendship can take different forms. For Michelle Somerville and Ida Rodriguez, it's a phone call every Tuesday. Here they are on one recent call. I can go anywhere and have this conversation with you. Right now, I'm part of Taco Bell. <laughs> You're at Taco Bell? Oh my goodness, I like the burrito bowl. The pair met through Commonwealth Care Alliance, a Boston-based health insurer for seniors and people with significant medical needs. Rodriguez says her social life slowed down as she got older. The weekly check-ins remind her she has a friend. And Somerville says she likes hearing about the books Rodriguez is reading. I want someone to read to me, but I don't want to read myself. So it was a match made in heaven. The women have never met in person, but they look forward to these weekly chats. And their connection could be good for their health, too. For NPR News, I'm Priyanka Dayal-McCluskey in Boston. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. Okay, the diamond industry would like you to buy something for your friend. People traditionally buy diamonds when they get married, but marriage rates are falling. And Jaya Saxena writes in The Atlantic that this affects the diamond market. 
over the past few years, it's certainly been time for the diamond industry to look at different strategies. Okay, let's go back. Why do people buy a diamond to get married to begin with? Saxena says that's because almost 100 years ago, the diamond company De Beers advertised a diamond ring as essential to wedding proposals. They even decided that ring should cost two months of a man's salary. Hmm. In the 1980s came a campaign to convince women to buy diamonds for their husbands, and still later, the industry encouraged women to buy diamonds for themselves. Now the industry has set its sights on friends. There's an ad from Jared where two sisters are sitting next to each other. The ad's in black and white, and they're talking to the camera. This necklace is truly a new piece of my soul. The crux of the ad is that they've chosen to honor that relationship with diamond necklaces. And I knew that it was what I longed for my entire life. <laughs> and Jared is encouraging women to honor these sorts of relationships with diamond jewelry. Every occasion deserves love. Jared, love brilliant. Peace of my soul. <laughs> Apparently, it's no longer enough to buy your friend lunch. If you're saying that you can honor sisterhood and friendship, they want to show that you should be honoring any kind of relationship with a diamond. Notably, the ads encourage the buyer to look closely at the diamond and a little less closely at its origins. I think once you start learning about the diamond industry, you see that perhaps a diamond, while beautiful, isn't necessarily the rare, valuable, singular object that diamond merchants are making it out to be. Having given these ads some thoughts, Saxena is saving her money. I don't think this campaign is particularly working on me. I don't think... My friends necessarily want diamond pendants. I think they're more interested in some other things. Her article is called Diamonds Are For Girls' Best Friends. So, Michelle, you buying diamonds for a friend anytime soon? Steve, I have two kids in college. <laughs> they need to buy me one. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm sure they will soon. Eventually. I'm sure they will soon. Mm-hmm. Okay. Tiffany's. The Diamond Network. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. Two Boston city councilors who've been caught up in scandals must advance in tomorrow's preliminary election in order to compete in November. It's 829. Tonight at City Space, restaurateur Nia Grace will talk about her Seaport Supper Club and share a taste from the menu. Tickets are at wbur.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Welch and Forbes. Over 100 years of experience providing customized private wealth management for individuals and families. WelchForbes.com. And the half-god of rainfall at ART. Women and goddesses rise up against Zeus in this modern-day myth. Two weeks only, now playing. AMREP.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. It's September 11th, the 22nd anniversary of the deadliest terrorist attack on U.S. soil. Commemorations will be held at the sites of the attacks in New York, where the World Trade Center towers fell, at the Pentagon and at a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. 
The hijackers who crashed in Pennsylvania were the only ones to miss their target. From member station WITF, Rachel McDevitt reports. Recordings from the flight illustrate how the 40 passengers and crew members tried to take back control of the plane, which was likely headed toward the U.S. Capitol building. It crashed in a former strip mine in western Pennsylvania, killing all on board. The remembrance ceremony in Shanksville includes a reading of the names of the victims along with a bell ringing that will coincide with the exact time of the crash, 10.03 a.m. Rabbi Jeffrey Myers, who survived the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting, will offer a moment of reflection. The day's ceremonies wrap up with a public wreath laying at the memorial. For NPR News, I'm Rachel McDevitt in Harrisburg. President Biden will observe the anniversary in Alaska. He's on his way back to the U.S. after a trip to India and Vietnam. In Hanoi earlier today, he met with government officials as well as business executives from Vietnam and the U.S. about expanding cooperation between the two countries after yesterday's historic upgrade of diplomatic relations. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Voters in Malden will not have the chance to weigh in on removing bike lanes or prohibiting future ones on the November ballot. Malden city councilors voted down questions to limit bike lanes in the city. City officials tell the Boston Herald some residents feel that bike lanes contribute to traffic congestion, but councilors say let the lanes enhance safety for everyone on the road. A New Hampshire high school cheerleading program is being disbanded following allegations of bullying and harassment. The Londonderry School Board voted to suspend the program last week. The allegations implicate coaches, students, and parents. An investigation into the program is ongoing. The district will decide whether to reinstate the program later this month. This is a big day for hopeful Boston Marathon runners. Registration for the 2024 race opens this morning. Alex Ashlock reports. All athletes with valid qualifying times from other marathons can submit their applications starting at 10 a.m. using the Boston Athletic Association online platform, Athletes Village. The registration period ends on Friday at 5 p.m. The BAA typically accepts around 23,000 qualifiers for the marathon, Professional athletes and runners raising money for charities make up the rest of the field of 30,000. Next year's marathon will be run on Patriots Day Monday, April 15th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Alex Ashlock. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. The Patriots started their regular season with a loss in Foxborough last night. They fell to the Eagles 25-20. Meanwhile, the Red Sox are celebrating a four-run victory against the Baltimore Orioles yesterday at home. Final score was 7-3. The Sox now turn their attention to the Yankees. They host the first of a four-game home series starting tonight. Some patchy fog this morning, then it'll be overcast today and in the mid-70s. There's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms around mid-afternoon. Tonight, cloudy and mid-60s with a chance of more rain overnight. Tomorrow starts with more patchy fog, then we'll have a mostly cloudy day back in the mid-70s with showers possible in the afternoon. Right now it's 69 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. 
And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. President Biden spent the weekend in Asia working to deepen cooperation with India and Vietnam. He was at a G20 summit in New Delhi, then made a stop in Hanoi. The subtext involved India's and Vietnam's northern neighbor, China. We're not looking to hurt China. Uh, Sincerely, we're all better off if China does well. China does well by the international rules. NPR White House correspondent Esma Khalid has been traveling with the president. Hey there, Esma. Hi, Steve. We'll tell people that you're now in Vietnam. What is the president's main mission there? Well, Biden came here to Hanoi to formally forge deeper ties with Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam is now putting the United States in its highest diplomatic category that's on par with China. And and Steve, this is really quite significant. Mm. Vietnam only places a few other countries in this top tier. And we heard President Biden describe this as being a historic moment that is overcoming a, quote, bitter past. This new status is not just about an economic relationship, but I will say that trade and investment are key. The U.S. and Vietnam are working together to expand the Vietnamese semiconductor industry. And earlier today, Biden met with tech CEOs and business leaders here in Hanoi. Uh, You know, the U.S. is already Vietnam's largest export market, and that has only grown even bigger since the U.S. slapped tariffs on a bunch of Chinese goods a couple of years ago. Well, if the United States is deepening relations with this neighbor of China that in some ways can economically rival China, in some ways I should emphasize, uh, how does that fit into the president's broader message? Well, the president yesterday in Hanoi repeatedly said he is not trying to hurt China. He's not trying to contain China. But, Steve, I think his actions suggest uh, sort of otherwise on the containment front. I mean, he has been systematically building relationships with other countries in the Indo-Pacific region. He recently invited the leaders of Japan and South Korea to Camp David, where they announced this new era of trilateral cooperation and plans to expand their security ties. And he flew here to Hanoi from New Delhi. He was in India uh, in part because this administration increasingly sees India as a counterbalance to China in the region. I will say that, you know, both India and Vietnam, these relationships are somewhat complicated because Biden came into office pledging to center human rights. And both India and Vietnam have been criticized on that issue. Uh, The White House says Biden has been candid about democracy and human rights, and he often does that with a degree of humility in private meetings. How, if at all, did China come up at that G20 summit in New Delhi? Uh, Well, I should point out that China's leader, Xi Jinping, did not attend the summit. And there was a sense that that in some ways created an opening for the United States to really take the lead on the agenda. There were two key proposals, and both seemed to revolve around countering China. Um, One was this plan to invest billions of dollars more into the World Bank to provide additional lending to low-income countries. And that was seen as an an alternative to Chinese lending. Uh, The other big plan was this idea of a new, ambitious global infrastructure system that would create a shipping and rail corridor from India to the Middle East and on to Europe. And of course, uh, China has spent years pouring money into its own infrastructure projects in Asia and Africa through its One Belt, One Road initiative. Asma, I'll note that it's 9-11, at least on this side of the international dateline. How's the administration Mm -hmm. marking this date? 
Well, other members of the administration will be at the sites that were attacked, but Biden himself will be in Anchorage, Alaska. Uh, we're told that he'll be joined by service members and their families to mark the date. Uh, you know, Steve, I will say I am struck by the fact that for most of my life, the Middle East has been the primary foreign policy focus for multiple administrations. And I think it is noteworthy that this year, 22 years after the attacks, the president is on his way back from Asia and China is now the primary foreign policy focus. NPR's Asma Khalid, safe travels home. Thanks, Steve. This is a day of remembrance in the U.S. as we honor those who lost their lives in the 9-11 terrorist attacks. But the United States is not the only country that commemorates 9-11. On this date, 50 years ago, a U.S.-backed coup overthrew Chile's democratically elected president. During the 17-year dictatorship that followed, thousands of people were killed or disappeared. Today, many in Chile will be reflecting on the country's search for justice. NPR's Carrie Khan reports. Luis Calderón García stands among the empty seats in Santiago's National Stadium. He points out a familiar awning in the distance to his wife standing next to him. That's where you saw me, says Calderón, now 78 and sporting a full white beard. His wife nods. She too remembers the scene 50 years ago. She was pregnant and had come searching for him. It was just days after the September 11th coup, and at this huge soccer stadium, thousands were being held here. And worse, says Calderón. They'd strike me with the butts of their rifles during interrogations, kick me. It was brutal. But luckily, they kept asking me about things I knew nothing about, he says. He says back then he was just a member of the Communist Party, young and with no useful information. After 14 months detained at the stadium and later at a camp in Chile's northern desert, Calderón was released. He and his family fled to Canada. Since the first day after the coup, he says, Chileans have never seen justice. Never. For many, what justice has been dispensed has been slow and uneven. Tens of thousands were tortured and more than 3,000 killed. But only about 300 remains have been located and identified. And compared to neighboring Argentina, where even senior military commanders of its dictatorship were convicted, few in Chile have been held accountable. Justice and Human Rights Minister Luis Cordero admits that's regrettable. Es suficiente. Has it been sufficient? Probably not, he tells NPR. Has it been advantageous? Definitely not, he adds. But Cordero, who himself had two family members disappeared, says for the first time ever, the state will now lead search efforts for the victims. Chile's leftist president, Gabriel Boric, announced the plan earlier this month. Gabi Rivera, president of the Association of Relatives of the Detained and Disappeared, applauds it. But she urges for more, especially getting information from Chile's reticent military. We have to demand that cases be reopened so that the perpetrators are held accountable, she says. For President Boric, politically, that is complicated. His popularity is waning. And as the country faces rising crime and a faltering economy, many are not prioritizing human rights. Victims worry time is running out to hold aging perpetrators accountable. 
But Luis Calderon, who was tortured and detained at the soccer stadium, says you can't force people to give up what they know. We can't do to them what they did to us, he says, torture them until they talk. Both he and his wife at the same time say that would be inhumane. Carrie Kahn, NPR News. This is NPR News. You're listening to WBUR on a Monday morning. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report has a preview as Google is set to face off in federal court tomorrow against the Justice Department and dozens of states who say the company monopolized Internet search technology. Showers and thunderstorms possible today, mainly around mid-afternoon, otherwise mid-70s and cloudy. Still overcast tonight as it falls to the mid-60s. Tomorrow, back to the mid-70s with another chance of afternoon showers. Right now, it's 69 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, local business leaders remain optimistic about the state's economy. The Associated Industries of Massachusetts's monthly report shows overall optimism for August defied predictions for a recession. Data show confidence had been decreasing since November of last year. A Manchester, New Hampshire-based cable modem maker is laying off more than 75 percent of its workers. Minim says it's slashing its workforce from 41 employees to just nine. The company says it wants to spend less. It also says supply chain disruptions are affecting its ability to pay expenses. Sales at Framingham-based TJX stores are up. Company officials tell the Boston Globe sales at TJ Maxx, Marshalls, and HomeGoods are up 6%. It's unclear what exactly is driving the trend. Company officials say the stores have recently become more popular with younger shoppers. It's 844. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston's preliminary elections are coming up tomorrow, and two city councilors beset by scandals are fighting to hold on to their seats. Jamaica Plain Councilor Kendra Laura is contesting criminal charges after she crashed an unregistered car into a woman's home earlier this summer. Councilor Ricardo Arroyo of Hyde Park faces multiple ethics allegations. WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports on the councillor's battle for re-election. About two dozen campaign volunteers gathered at a tea stop in Jamaica Plain on a recent Saturday morning before knocking on doors for councillor Kendra Lara. Lara gathered them in a circle to discuss talking points. She said the car accident was the first thing they should bring up. There was a mistake that was made and we want to make sure that our constituents know that I am not trying to minimize the situation. Police say Lara was driving double the speed limit when she crashed. The car was unregistered and her license had been suspended for a decade. Lara is disputing some of the charges in court, but she acknowledges her seven-year-old son Zaire wasn't properly secured in a booster seat. For me, obviously, that is the biggest misstep in all of this, especially as a mother, right? My, nothing comes before my son. Lara's openness to talk about the accident seemed to reassure her supporters. Rachel Polliner is part of Progressive West Roxbury Roslindale and said she had a lot of questions after the crash. 
And so I called her because I wanted the story. And I know enough to not take the first set of stories at face value. What's less clear can Laura sway people who've written her off. People like Woody, a voter who answered the door as Laura canvassed the neighborhood. Hello. How are you? He asked her about the accident right away. Somebody pulled out in front of me. I swerved to avoid hitting oncoming. You know, there was a car coming towards me, and I lost control of a car. Um, and so the accident was, you know, an accident. Woody thanked her for stopping by, but didn't commit to voting for her. Walking away, Laura said she felt good about the interaction. I feel like I answered his questions. I think he's going to pass on that question to the people who live in his house, to his neighbors, and hopefully it has some sort of impact. Laura wants to talk more about her record, like fighting for more affordable housing and decarbonizing city buildings. She faces two serious challengers. William King, an IT director for a nonprofit, has the support of two of Laura's more conservative council colleagues. Labor attorney Ben Weber is endorsed by the Boston Globe. Despite the slew of negative headlines, UMass Boston political science professor Aaron O'Brien says Laura has several advantages. You've done it before. You know who's important in the community. You have a get out the vote team. You know what meetings to show up. And you've done good quality constituency service. And that builds voter loyalty. O'Brien says both Laura and fellow councilor Ricardo Arroyo have the experience and name recognition to mobilize voters in a low turnout preliminary election. I do not think it's an impossibility at all that one or both of these embattled politicians could emerge victor. Hello. Hi, how you doing? Councilor Arroyo, checking in with Representative Holmes. He said I had to knock on every door on his house. Arroyo canvassed the Wellington Hill neighborhood of Mattapan with State Representative Russell Holmes on a recent evening. Arroyo's fighting back against a series of scandals over the past year, from decades-old allegations of sexual assault to accusations of election meddling involving former U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins. But at the 52 doors Arroyo knocked that night, those stories didn't come up once. Instead, people wanted to talk about why their trash wasn't being picked up in the state of Boston public school buildings. Arroyo stopped for about 15 minutes to talk to a voter named Cherie. She asked about a long-promised speed bump project, and he connected her to the city's construction schedule. Before he left, Arroyo asked for her vote. Can I count on you? Do I got you? I got you. I appreciate you. Thank you. Arroyo believes this direct engagement will carry him through the preliminary election. And I think one of the benefits to this kind of campaign is my opponents think that what voters care about the most is what they read in the newspaper. And the more they do that, the less they connect with voters about what actually moves them to vote. Arroyo has three opponents for his Hyde Park seat. One is Jean-Claude Sinan, a Haitian-American community activist and radio host who's run for council before. Another is Jose Ruiz, a former Boston police officer who's backed by several city councilors and former Mayor Marty Walsh. The third candidate, Enrique Pepin, was recently Boston's head of neighborhood services. He's endorsed by Mayor Michelle Wu. Arroyo said he knows he's vulnerable. And sometimes that means I got to be open to taking hits, uh, but I got a pretty strong jaw. So, you know, that's part of the process. And I think people know when you're fighting for them and they do respond well to that. Only two candidates from each district will advance past the preliminary election. Councilors Lara and Arroyo are doing all they can to make their case to their constituents. Tomorrow, those voters will decide if it was enough. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. 
Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on earthquake recovery efforts in Morocco and an update on tensions between Egypt and Ethiopia over a controversial hydroelectric dam on the Blue Nile River. It's 8.50. China's real estate and construction industries are struggling, and that's causing serious economic ripple effects. People is no confident anymore. It's no money. Real thing is people don't have money in their hand anymore. I don't know why, but that's everybody's situation right now. I'm Elsa Chang. Fears of stagnation in China on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brown University's Masters in Healthcare Leadership, an accelerated one-year program transforming healthcare leaders professional.brown.edu. And Loomis Sales, where portfolio managers, research analysts, and traders work together to help clients reach their financial goals. Learn more at loomissales.com. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. President Joe Biden returns today from his trip to Asia after formally cementing diplomatic ties with Vietnam. Russian officials have confirmed that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is set to meet with President Vladimir Putin in the coming days. And today marks the 22nd anniversary of the September 11th attacks on the U.S. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. This is the week where union workers could walk out of all three big car and truck companies. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. And by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. Detroit's big three automakers and the union representing their workers are now less than four days away from a strike deadline. That's late Thursday. Contract negotiations continue, the United Auto Workers say. They're ready to strike at all three companies, which would be a first. Marketplace's Nova Safo is following this. Yeah, David, uh, the good news is the pace of negotiations have picked up over the last week and a half. The two sides, though, remain far apart, and the UAW has rejected the latest offers from all three automakers, GM, Ford, and Stellantis. The companies did move a bit closer to the union's demands, though. For example, wage increase offers went up from 9% to nearly 15% over four years. The union, though, seeking wage increases of as much as 46%, the end of two-tiered pay structures, the unionizing of jobs at new battery plants, and a number of other changes. So the two sides, yeah, not even close to a deal yet. In previous years, negotiations have gone to the last minute and even continued after the contract deadline. The union says this time around, it's prepared to strike if there's no deal by Thursday night. Now, strikes have costs that go beyond direct effects on the companies and union workers. That's right. And there are potentially costs to the greater economy, too. Uh, hard to say what that would be. We know that in 2019, GM workers went on strike for six weeks. And back then, the cost to GM alone was about three and a half billion dollars. 
There are also other companies involved, suppliers to the automakers that could be hurt. Usually the union picks one of the big three to strike against. This time around, it's promising, as you mentioned, to strike against all three. That's never happened before. And the cost could potentially total $5 billion or more, according to one estimate. Certainly significant, David. All right. Thank you. Stock and Ford, Stellantis and GM are all up in pre-market trading this morning. About a half an hour before that opening bell, S&P futures are up half a percent. NASDAQ futures are up eight-tenths of a percent. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Odoo, provider of an all-in-one management platform with a suite of fully integrated applications designed to simplify and connect every aspect of business in one software. More at odoo.com. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab believes every investor deserves to work with a firm they can count on with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. Google has a date in federal court tomorrow. The U.S. Justice Department and dozens of states are suing, alleging Google abused its formidable position in online searching. Marketplace's Lily Jamali is here. Hello. Hey, David. All right, antitrust, concerned about abuse of market power, U.S. versus Google. Tell me more about what the Justice Department and all these states suing will claim the company did. Well, I'll start with a statistic cited by the government when this case was first filed in 2020, and that is that almost 90% of all Internet queries in the U.S. happen on Google. I think we can both agree, almost 90%, that is dominance. And the government say Google attained that dominance illegally by paying other companies from phone makers like Apple and Samsung to web browsing companies like Mozilla. So under these deals, as the Justice Department describes it, in exchange, those companies made Google's search engine the default choice on the devices and the platforms that so many of us use. All right, the sewers are saying that, but what's Google, parent company Alphabet, what's their view? Yeah, Google argues that it won the battle for dominance in search fair and square. In a recent statement, its president of global affairs, Kent Walker, said it this way. He said, people don't use Google because they have to. They use it because they want to. The underpinning of that argument is that we, the user, have plenty of ways to access information, more ways than we've ever had. All it takes, they say, is switching your search engine default to something else. Okay, and early sense of which way this might go? Well, hard to know, but one legal scholar I spoke to is so far less than convinced by the arguments Google has been making here. This is Rebecca Allensworth at Vanderbilt Law School. If indeed Google was confident about their ability not just to be the best search engine, but to be the best search engine when also facing real competition from other possible search engines, then they wouldn't be having to pay billions of dollars to companies like Apple to remain the default. You know, as I've been reporting this, I haven't seen much dispute about the fact that Google dominates search. To Allensworth's point, it's the payments to other companies that are really at the heart of this case that the governments are making here and is the thing that could really complicate things for Google. I'm seeing another tech biggie, Apple, is getting pulled into this dispute as well. That's right. This has been very interesting. Apple is not a defendant, but the government has said that it has been chief among Google's partners in these deals. 
Three senior executives at Apple have been called on by the Justice Department to testify. One of them is Services SVP Eddie Q. He is a very familiar name in Silicon Valley who you'll often see on stage at Apple events. Apple tried to stop the government's push to have Q and others testify, but we learned last week ultimately they weren't successful. So they'll testify. Now, the landmark antitrust case, U.S. versus Microsoft, remember this one clearly, 1998 mm -hmm. is one of our reference points for what happens when tech companies face antitrust allegations of this scale. Do you see any lessons of that case for this Google one? Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to be hearing that case invoked a whole lot as this one plays out over the next 10 or so weeks. And the key word is default. Back then, Microsoft was accused of making its Internet browser the default for Windows users. Now they say Google's doing the same thing, only with search. Marketplace's Lily Jamali, thank you very much. Thank you, David. And nothing like Twinkies and jam, I always say, J.M. Smuckers. Could announce a deal as early as today to buy Hostess, maker of Twinkies and lots of other sweet things wrapped in cellophane that are normally not included in breakfasts of champions. Reuters has a source suggesting the deal might be worth $5 billion. Hostess has gone through two bankruptcies. Hostess stock, ticker symbol TWNK, is up 19% in pre-market trading. From APM, American Public Media. WVUR supporters include Historic New England, hosting its 2023 summit in Providence, Rhode Island, bringing together regional and national leaders to share ideas and solutions to strengthen the livability and vitality of communities across New England. Be part of the conversation. Learn more at summit.historicnewengland.org. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.